You are listening to the Resilience Podcast. I'm Ole Heuer, and I'm here to inspire you on how to build your resilience and capacity in all aspects of your life, one change at a time. Today, I'm extremely excited to have the possibility to interview Melanie Joy. Melanie is a PhD, a Harvard-educated psychologist who has specialized in relationships, communication, and social transformation. She's also an award-winning author of five books. Today, we're going to talk about her latest book, Getting Relationships Right, How to Build Resilience and Thrive in Life, Love and Work. So let's get Melanie onto the screen. Welcome. It's great Hi. to see you. Thank Hi. you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and, and be a part of this incredibly important conversation. Great. So, so. Uh, my first question to you is getting relationships right. What made you decide to, to write that obviously very relevant book? Well, it really um, actually grew out of my own personal story in many ways, um, which started a long time ago when I was a little girl. Um, probably the, the, with a relationship, one of the relationships that, that really influenced me and set the stage for my life's work was actually my relationship with an animal. Um, it was my relationship with my dog. And like so many people, um, certainly in the United States, you know, I grew up with a dog who, who I loved, um, like a family member. Um, I was a person who cared about animals and, and would never want to contribute to them suffering. Um, and like just about everybody, I also grew up um, eating, you know, the typical Western diet of a lot of meat, eggs and dairy. And um, the next animal who I had a relationship with, who actually set the stage for the work that I do today, what came to me in the form um, of a hamburger years later. And this was in 1989 when I was 23 years old. And um, I ate this hamburger and I got completely, um, really, really sick. So I wound up in um, Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, where I'm from, on, on intravenous antibiotics. Um, after that experience, I, I just stopped eating meat because, you know, it was, there was no, to my knowledge, um, any relational reason. I wasn't thinking about cows, for example. I wasn't thinking about ethics. I was just disgusted, you know, by the, the last food I had eaten that had made me so sick. And in this process, I started learning about my new diet. Um, and at the time it was a vegetarian diet. And what I learned shocked and horrified me. I, I could not believe the the extent of like the suffering of, of animals. And here I had grown up with an animal who I had been so close to and somebody who cared about animals. Um, I couldn't believe what was happening to the environment. And, um, you know, and what shocked me, however, in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. The response was almost always the same. It was like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. Or they called me a, a crazy vegan, I became vegan shortly after this, vegan hippie propagandist. And so this made me really curious. Um, and I started asking these questions that I realized were really relational questions. I ultimately came to realize these questions that were driving me. And I was, you know, asking myself, how is it possible that people like myself, you know, my family, my friends who were rational people, who were caring people, who cared about our impact on others, um, who cared like all people, you know, who were hardwired to feel empathy for others, who 
were people who wanted connection with others. And this also included the other animals um, that are parts of our lives on the planet. How is it that all of us virtually um, can act against our natural drive to connect and our natural, you know, our core values of, of compassion and, and fairness um, without realizing what we're doing, what's going on here psychologically. And so this led me to study the psychology of, of violence and nonviolence, broadly the psychology of, of oppression. Um, and, you know, and I asked myself the question, if I understand why people turn away from violence and, and, and you know, some of these really serious problems in the world, then I can maybe have a better understanding of what needs to happen to help us to face more into those and to create healthier behaviors and, and, and connections. And I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation specifically on the psychology of, of eating meat. Um, but I did my re research more broadly. And what I ultimately came to recognize is that oppression, you know, and some of the most pressing problems in the world today, if you think about it, like war, um, poverty, um, animal exploitation, climate change, racism, sexism, and, you know, dysfunctional workplaces, abusive workplaces or abusive interpersonal relationships, all of these com these problems, they, they seem when we look at them individually, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. We think of, you know, this toxic communication that's so pervasive and um, pol polarization. But when we look at these problems, they have a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's a dysfunctional way of relating with other individuals, as social groups, with other animals, with the environment, and even with ourselves. And so, this was really what led me to recognize that if I, I want to help create a better world um, for all beings, I really need to be focusing on, you know, promoting awareness of how to have, how to cultivate healthy ways of relating. When we learn to relate in ways that are healthy, our lives and our world simultaneously transform. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. I mean, I, what what really came to me when when you shared all this, um, one of one of my big spiritual inspirations is, is uh, Radhanath Swami. I don't know if, if you're familiar with him. Um, he shared this wonderful, beautiful story where he was sitting in in Delhi airport and uh, the environmental minister of India uh, came over to him and uh, uh, and she wanted to talk to him. She actually sent a person over, and um, and the person came over and said, "Are you willing to 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 talk to the environmental minister of India?" And he said, "Yeah, of course." She comes over, and uh, and she started like, "What are you What are you Swamis doing about the whole environmental, the pollution, and the challenges we have in India? You're just sitting there meditating." And um, he he kept quiet for a while, and then. You know, after a few seconds, he, he he answered back. You know, it's this is really about the pollution of the human heart, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can do as much as we can. We can clean up the oceans, we can clean up the streets, and you know, we can recycle all the waste. But at the end of the day, if we as human beings are not much more aware um, and also are better at relating and connecting. Uh, if there's so much greed and there's so many people who want to, you know, focus on profit and, and, and other things, I mean, within two, three years, you know, it's going to come back again.
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So just to give you another, other, another angle of it, I, I, I like what you say that it also goes beyond um, uh, human beings and and the connection to to animals as well. Um, excellent. So my my next question to you, um, in your book, you, um, you talk about the importance of developing what you call relational literacy. Can you explain what relational literacy is? and also um, why it is important. Yeah, absolutely. I love your example, by the way. And I think it's a beautiful example of how change needs to happen from not only the outside in, but also the inside out, right? It's not that we don't have to clean up our external pollution. Obviously we do if we want to have a planet um, to pass down to our grandchildren, or if we want to have a sustainable planet today. And at the same time, if we don't address so the consciousness, right, the, the underlying, the common denominator, essentially, the consciousness that drives us to pollute in the first place, then we'll just keep recreating pollution, recreating problems in new forms. So it's a beautiful example you use. And an example, I think, that um, really uh, helps appreciate how relationships can be so fundamental to this healing and this transformation. We can use our relationships essentially as the, the training ground on which to build this healthier consciousness um, and create a better world. So relational literacy is um, the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And, you know, it's, I am always struck by the fact that most of us have to learn complicated geometry, right, that we'll probably never need to use. And yet we don't get a single formal lesson in how to have healthy relationships, which of course includes how to communicate effectively. Communication is the, the primary way we relate. And you know, when you look at some of the most pressing problems in our lives and also in our world, as I mentioned earlier, you know, problems like war and poverty and, and racism and animal exploitation, these massive problems and, and in our own personal lives, the struggles that we have with our interpersonal relationships and the level of controlling relationships and, and, and abuse and the way that we even treat ourselves. These are not problems that result from people who don't know how to do geometry. So it, it's the good news is that learning relational literacy is something anybody who really is interested in can, can do. Right now, our collective level of relational literacy is, is extraordinarily low. We're living in, you know, we're still living in essentially what I would call the relational dark ages. When you look at the way that people communicate with each other, look at some of our, like, you know, leading political figures and um, some of our world leaders communicate with each other and the modeling that we get. Um, it's really st striking to me in some ways that, that we make it through the day sometimes because we really haven't been provided with the tools to relate and communicate in, in ways that are healthy. But the good news is that, you know, because relational dysfunction is the common denominator of so many problems in our lives, in our world. And I do not mean to oversimplify, you know, problems that are obviously complex and that involve economics and, you know, politics and, and many other, many other issues. Um, however, however, this common denominator of relational dysfunction is something that when we address it, we ultimately are addressing multiple problems at a time. If, mm -hmm. if our collective level of relational literacy were higher, we would 
transform our world um, relatively quickly. I have, I have no doubt about that. And when people learn the principles and tools for healthy ways of relating, they'll, they often find that their personal relationships, including how they relate to themselves, how they feel about themselves, the choices that they make that impact themselves change dramatically. And just for people who are listening, who are saying, you know, what do you mean our, you know, we relate to ourselves, our primary relationship is indeed with ourselves. We are relating to ourselves every moment of every day in, for example, our self-talk. You know, we have, we all have this, this dialogue in our minds, um, this voice in our heads, we're constantly talking to ourselves. And most of us communicate with ourselves in a way that we would never tolerate coming from someone else. And studies have shown that how we communicate with ourselves has an impact on our self-worth or self-esteem. It has an impact on um, you know, our, our well-being in, in many different ways. We're also uh, interacting with ourselves or relating to ourselves through our life choices. You know, you're making choices right now, probably, that will affect your you know, future self of five minutes from now or your future self of five years from now. So when we learn relational literacy, we really can, can transform our experience on all of these levels, the intrapersonal internally, the interpersonal in our interpersonal relationships, um, and collectively, collectively in our world. And we can use our relationships as the training ground on which to become healthier selves when we learn how to treat another being in a way that reflects health, um, that helps us to become more healthy in the process. Excellent, beautiful. Um, I love this conversation, obviously. I think the, the heart in our model, uh, the resilience model is, is, is my favorite place. And I think also the place I think you, you commented in on it. I mean, it's, it's, it's an area where most of, have, most of us, including myself, has so much unleashed potential. Um, you know, just just the, we have a little challenge we call negative self-talk in our in our in our platform, where you also can embark on a journey over two weeks, just to be aware of how often you punish yourself. I mean, I don't know with you, but I mean, I have several times that I actually tell to my. I mean, I, I if I don't catch myself in it, I end up telling myself that I'm not good enough. Right, I you know I measure myself up against myself. What I did the day before, I measure myself up against others, and we do all those things all the time. So, so I'm really with you on that. So I'm curious. Also, in your book, you write that people who are different from one another can still have a good relationship. Can you explain this point? Absolutely. Um, I, I would say that um, there is this belief that if we don't love ourselves, you know, you were talking about how change has to start with ourselves. And, and I think it's absolutely, you know, vital that we do work on ourselves. So I, I completely agree with that. I think we can also consider that we can learn to change ourselves and grow, essentially. We can learn to love ourselves, for example, through loving and being loved by another. We can learn to treat ourselves well through being treated well by and treating by others and treating them well. 
Um, and, and to your point about the voice in your head saying that you're not good enough, and this is really, this is the foundation, this is the, the essence of so many of our relational struggles, our struggles in general, is this, this sense that we are somehow fundamentally not worthy. And this idea of worth, of, of self-worth or of worth in general, is at the core of healthy relationality. Um, when we, you know, we all need, everybody needs to feel fundamentally worthy. And we seek to feel fundamentally worthy, to feel that we have intrinsic worth. That means that we are no less worthy than anybody else on this planet. Um, studies have shown that when people feel that there are, you know, that their dignity is being harmed, that there are attacks or affronts to their dignity, meaning they're being treated or perceived as though they are less worthy than somebody else. Um, they become defensive, understandably, and this defensive stance is at the heart of a lot of um, some of the violent behaviors that we see um, in our interpersonal lives and in our world. It's not everything, but it is, it's a piece of the whole. So it's really important. We can talk about that, that more later. But what you say about this voice saying that you're not good enough, it's the voice that, that virtually everybody carries. It's just a matter of degree. And most of us struggle to feel that we're good enough. And most of us are very defensive against feeling that others are perceiving us as not being good enough. Hmm. And most of us learn that the way to feel that we're good enough is by looking for others who are less good than we are, comparing ourselves to others that we feel better about ourselves in a vicious circle because we end up putting other people down in order to boost ourselves up. And then we can feel worse about ourselves because we've acted against our integrity to put somebody else down um, in this sort of vicious cycle. And this mentality, this, this belief, um, I have written about this in my book called Powerarchy, the Psychology of Oppression, um, this belief in a hierarchy of moral worth that some individuals or groups are more worthy um, than others, essentially mm. worthy of being treated with respect. This is at the heart of oppression and it's at the heart of relational dysfunction and to have a healthy relationship the core of healthy relationality is honoring dignity it's being in a relationship with yourself and with others where you might be different you asked about difference you might have a difference of opinion you might have a very different way of doing things you might actually engage in behaviors that are unethical or harmful you know or or I should say somebody else may be doing this. You might be perceiving them. Um, however, if you can maintain a perception of the other's dignity and your own dignity in that process, you can navigate pretty much, you know, many, many different types of problems and interpersonal problems. So people often assume, you asked about differences. People often assume that um, the reason that conflict in relationships exists, any kind of relationships, right, exists is because people are different. And it's true that when we have different, we're all different, and differences in our personalities, for example, or lifestyles or whatever, create different needs. And when our different needs are clashing um, or seem to be clashing, then we can engage in conflict. But but differences are generally not a problem in and of themselves. It's how we relate to the differences that mm. makes them problematic. Mm. When we perceive somebody's difference as a deficiency, 
you know, thinking you should be more like I am when you're an extrovert relating to an introvert and you're making up a story in your mind that that introvert is not a team player or is, you know, not energetic enough or not outgoing enough or whatever it might be, you know, you're perceiving that other person's difference, not as simply who they are and how they are, um, but as a deficiency in some ways. Um, and we tend to push each other in order to make people more like we are, rather than recognizing that differences are normal, natural, and necessary. They exist in relationships, and it's our judgment and our stories that we make up about the differences that tend to get us into trouble. I, I, I want to add a little bit to that. I think it's it's such an exciting topic. I mean, it also brings me a little bit onto the shadow work that that often when we meet people that are very different from ourselves, we get extremely triggered. Uh, I remember back in the day when I was starting to coach um, senior executives, I uh, I had a one-on-one -on -one with the CEO of a he was the biggest business in a in in, in a Scandinavian bank, and uh, uh, he had done a resilient 360 test and got a lot of feedback. Um, and he also had to write what motivated him and, and what he was not so happy about. And he almost attacked me when I came into the meeting room and he was like, I, I cannot deal with my boss anymore. It's over. Uh, you know, I've sent the resignation to the group CEO. I, I, I simply cannot deal. And he said with her. And I said, okay, hey, hey, stop. Wait a minute. Before you continue doing that, let's have a look at what is it that triggers you so much. And, you know, he started, so, so she's this, she's that, she's that, she's this. And, and you know, for every everything he mentioned, I said, where are you on that scale yourself, right? And he was obviously completely on the opposite end of the scale. So he got so triggered by her that, you know, he could not be in the same room with her. Hmm. Um, but I gave him a challenge, you know, over the next three months to really embrace her and, and see the potential in that she's actually very different from him and how they can, you know, come together and be more successful together by accepting each other's differences. And he actually managed, you know, through that. And he came back three months after and said, I built a much better relationship with her. You know, our business is doing much better. I, I took the resignation letter back um, and he mm. was very happy, right? And I just, I just love, you know, to, to also go deeper in those one-on-one -on -one conversations to people, um, to just build an awareness about that when we meet people that are very different from ourselves, it's often a gift. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's really well said. And to like really, as you point out, to really, to first of all, you know, noticing your reaction and, wow, I'm encountering this person and I'm having this reaction, a triggered reaction. That means I'm feeling defensive. And, mm. you know, sometimes, as you say, it's because of your own projections onto the other person and because the story you're making up about them. Sometimes you might be triggered because your psyche is, you know, there's wisdom in your psyche and your psyche is saying this person is not safe. And then you might need to listen to that voice and say, okay, what's going on? Maybe they're not treating me respectfully. Sometimes it's, you know, often there's social conditioning where we learn to assume that, you know, women are supposed to be behave a certain way when they're not, it feels like an affront, right? So there's, there's all of these different reasons. And to your point, what's so important is to step back and reflect and say, 
What is my experience? Oh, I'm feeling triggered now. Why? What is my narrative? What is my story? And with your example, you know, there was the story was that um, this person, this other person, this woman was representing something that was apparently threatening to to this man. So very interesting. And I think also to share with the audience on a on on a, on, on a you know physical level. I mean, every time I have this, you know, let's let's say a little bit of pressure here, or I feel. Ooh, something is not right in my stomach. And, and it's because I'm connecting with someone to, to tell yourself that, wow, right now I'm feeling uncomfortable. And, and most often, I'm not saying if someone is pointing a gun right at you, of course you should respond to that. But in, in more relational situations at work, when you show up in meetings and stuff, um, when that happens, there's a great opportunity, a great learning opportunity right in that moment if you have the awareness to recognize it. Um, so my next question, curious to hear your take on um, people and you know their relationship to managers, especially in corporates. Today, I mean, people are not often leaving about companies. The number one reason why people are leaving companies today is because they have a bad relationship to their manager. So, what is your suggestion to people? There might be people in the audience, as there are people at a later point who will listen to, to the webcast that are facing a challenging manager or a challenging colleague at work. How best to deal with a situation like that? Well, I think first of all, and it's a great question. Um, first of all, really understanding the formula for healthy relationships, um, what I would describe as a formula for healthy relationships is really important. And so this is quite simply a healthy relationship is one or a relational dynamic, right? A, dyna a relational dynamic, an interaction. Every interaction that we have is um, reflects either, you know, to some degree health or, or, or dysfunction in relationships. So the formula for a healthy dynamic or healthy interaction and for a healthy relationship in general is um, the practice of integrity. Integrity is the integration of core moral values and the, the two most um, widely espoused moral values um, universally are compassion or caring and justice or fairness, right? So the practice of integrity, I'll make this even simpler, you know, it's that is treating others the way that you would want to be treated, treating them with integrity. So you practice integrity and honor their dignity. When you honor somebody's dignity, you don't perceive them as less than you. You honor your own dignity, you don't shame yourself. Um, so when we're not honoring dignity or somebody is not honoring our dignity, the emotional response to that is shame. So mm. I'm gonna give you this, I'm gonna give you sort of like just a general explanation, then I'll talk specifically about what your question mm. is about managers. So a healthy relational, uh, you know, a healthy interaction is one that reflects integrity and it honors dignity. And this results in greater connection. So you think about relationships you have in your life, right? Think about a good relationship or a great relationship. Chances are you feel pretty connected with that person or that individual, right? Chances are you trust that they practice integrity towards you. You trust that they're going to treat you the way that you would want, they would want to be treated. And chances are you feel that they honor your dignity. They're not looking at you as somehow less than as less worthy of being treated with respect. 
right? And if you think about a relationship in your life that's not a good relationship, like a really lousy relationship, maybe it's even just with an online troll or something, chances are you do not trust that that person will practice integrity to you, towards you. You don't feel that they honor your dignity and you feel disconnected with them rather than connected with them. So that's the formula right there. That That is essentially it. And every interaction, every relationship exists on somewhere on this, what I would call the relational spectrum. So usually it's not that you have a healthy relationship or not, but it's you know more or less healthy or, or dysfunctional. Um, so this applies to the workplace. This applies to everything, every interaction. We can ask ourselves these same questions questions. Um, does this practice reflect integrity, honor, dignity, and um, it, result in, in, it will result in, in connection. With that in mind, the workplace poses some unique challenges, and particularly people who are relating to, to managers or supervisors. We bring our projections, we bring our narratives or our stories with us wherever we go. And we've all had life experiences and been socialized in a way to relate to people with power, you know, or to relate around power issues, you know, to people with power or to people with less power in different ways. So, you know, you have actually talked a lot about um, the importance of self-awareness, you know, developing self-awareness is fundamental so that you can deal with whatever problems may arise, be that with managers or, or, you know, anybody else, you really need to be able to stop. If you notice um, that you're having a problem with, with a manager, that you're not feeling good in this, in this interaction. Notice if you're feeling less than that's, that's an indicator, you know, that there's a, probably a problem with the power dynamic. Um, then you pause and reflect what's going on. What's the story I'm telling myself? Your story might be accurate. Your story might be this manager is not respecting me. You know, that's important to pay attention to when you really learn how like the principles and tools for healthy relating. And I'll talk about some practical tools um, shortly. Um, then what happens is your level of relational literacy is high enough so that when you're having problems with people or conflicts with people or you're just uncomfortable with people, you can identify what exactly is wrong. Because a lot of the times we don't know what's wrong. We just know that we're angry or we don't feel good about ourselves in somebody's presence. We don't know. Maybe that's because your expectations of this manager are unfair. Maybe that's because, you know, one of your parents your or your authority figures growing up abused power and and you have um, problems, you know, you're uncomfortable dealing with people who have power over you. Mm. Maybe it's because your manager is in fact being abusive towards you. And I don't mean physically abusive necessarily, but they're abusing their power and being disrespectful. When you have the language and the understanding of the very specific behaviors of respect, disrespect, you know, then you can identify them. So if you notice, so, so step one is to, try to build relational literacy yourself. That's why I wrote my book in the first place. There are plenty of great, you know, you have great resources for people. Um, that's number one. Um, number two, try to remember that even people in positions of power, um, that try to remember that we are all more than just our roles, right? So for better or worse, the workplace creates 
unique relational dynamics, right? So sometimes it's for better because, you know, we stay within the confines of professional roles and we're less likely to have emotional meltdowns on each other or do the kinds of things that we might do with our family or partners or something. Um, but it's also problematic in that it, it becomes very easy for us to forget that underneath the roles that we're playing, you know, supervisor, supervisee, for example, there are there's a relationship between people. And that's always where the attention needs to be if we want to relate in a way that's healthy. So try to remember, it becomes really easy to just project onto somebody in a role. This is a manager and the manager's being a jerk. And I mean, we often assume that people in positions of power are somehow um, less vulnerable to being shamed. I mean, the mm -hmm. way that sometimes staff people talk about managers and the way that the public talks about celebrities, for example, um, there's this assumption, well, you're famous, this can't touch you. You know, you have power, this can't touch you. And that nobody is invulnerable to the, you know, very, very debilitating effects of shame. And sometimes the more power you have, the more vulnerable you are. Mm -hmm. um, it's very important as well to like, develop a practice of, of develop your own self-observer, develop your self-awareness to when you develop your inner observer, your self-observer, you know, you're pausing. You just, one thing you can do is just pause during the day three or four times, just pause for one minute or two minutes and ask yourself, what am I thinking? Notice the story in your mind, notice the narrative. Notice what you're saying to yourself without judgment. As soon as you bring judgment in, you're not just noticing, you're engaging with the story and feeding it. Mm. You need to notice this. Notice what you're feeling and where are you feeling it in your body. The self-awareness, there's so much wisdom in your body. There's so much wisdom in your psyche. You are the expert on you. So if you're having a problem with a manager or anybody, a colleague at work, you know, most people who are having problems can't actually identify the source of the problem. So they just get frustrated and stop responding to emails or they start acting out or they miss, maybe they misidentify the source of the problem or maybe they recognize the source of the problem, but they don't have the communication skills to actually talk about it. So they end up yelling about it and, and creating more of a problem or ignoring the person and creating more of a problem. So, so recognize this and, and particularly in a workplace, Notice, notice your relationship with power. There have been some really interesting studies recently that looked at how being in a position of power or being in a position of not having power impacts our, um, our perceptions and impacts our feelings and impacts our behaviors. So for example, and this is, this is important for people who are in positions of management and positions of power. When you're in a position where you have more power than somebody else, you will automatically, at least this is what research shows, you will automatically empathize less with those people than you normally would. So you are less connected to your empathy for people who are in positions of less power than you. This is really important to be aware of because people end up doing things that are not respectful and that are harmful that they would never end up, they would never do in other circumstances simply because they have power. Think about when you're a consumer you know, complaining about a purchase that you made um, and the way that you might talk to somebody, you know, who's who's in a position of service, who's serving you in some way. Yeah. Um, studies have also shown that when you have power, you feel more entitled 
you feel more entitled to break the rules and that to a double standard. So basically, you know, you're the boss, you can show up to the meeting late and, and it's okay. And you don't expect people to get mad at you or be frustrated. But if somebody who works under you shows up late, you'll get a lot more angry than you would expect them to get. And it goes both way. When you ways, when you don't have power, you know, you perceive the you you often perceive yourself as less entitled. So this is really really important to know because when you don't have what I call power literacy, it's a real understanding of how power affects you, um, you are much more likely to abuse your power no matter how well-intentioned you are. You're more likely, for example, to take up the space in an interaction or a dynamic, for example. You're more likely to talk over people. You're more likely to talk, period, and not give other people the space to share their, to share their feedback. Um, you might have power not just because you're in a position with subordinates working under you, but because you're a white person with people of color or because you're a man dealing with women, right? So there are these different types of power differentials that, that exist. But most important is just knowing this awareness that power affects your perceptions, which affect your feelings, which drive your behaviors. Just that awareness alone can really be transformational for you to have. It can really prevent you from abusing power when, you know, it's so easy to, it's really understandable in some ways how people abuse power because this is what happens to us psychologically when we get power. We start to think and feel differently and therefore we act differently. It's beautiful. I, lo I love this topic on, on power and also the, again, the self-awareness. Um, one of the things I came across recently is, uh, Unity mapping. I don't know if you are familiar with that concept, but no. Literally, what you're doing there is you're looking at some of the some of the goals you want to achieve in your professional or personal life, and then you're looking at, at the behaviors that goes up against you um, um, achieving those goals. And um, there were a few examples also in a in Harvard Harvard Business Review article about uh, immunity mapping where. You know, on one hand, as a manager, you want to give space to to um, your team. But what's constantly bumping up against you is your ego, because you also want to take space and you also want to be honored and you want to feel special. And and, and you see how that that is obviously going up against each other. Um, right. So for people to, it's, it's a very, very powerful process, immunity mapping. There's a beautiful article on, on, on also Harvard Business School called Making Business Personal that I can also advise our uh, audience to read if you want to go a little bit deeper into to analyzing some of your goals and also the behaviors and the patterns that goes up against you achieving those goals. Yeah. Now we've talked a lot about corporate life. What about um, our personal life? I met quite a few people recently who are actually a little bit challenged in building friendship and also sustain friendships. I mean, it's not a, for me, it's a very natural thing to do. I have a little bit the opposite challenge that mm -hmm. you know, I have so many friends and it's, it's very difficult for me to keep up with them. Um, I also love to have friendship on a very, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be all of them on a very deep level. I love to have different types of friendships, but recently I've come across quite a few people where it's challenging for them to, to actually build friendship and also to sustain friendships. So on a very practical level, 
any recommendations here for, for those people and to our audience? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what somebody is looking for, obviously, in a friendship. It is, it's challenging with people being so busy and, you know, far, we're, we're, you know, we're able to connect more with technology, but we're also further apart and, you know, at least before we were all traveling quite, or many people were traveling a lot. Um, so it's, I mean, the one thing that you can do is to ask yourself what you would love in a friend. What would make, like really write down a list of like the top thing, the qualities and behaviors that you would look for in a friend and then make sure that that's what you're doing. Because, you know, just practice what you're looking for. So if you say you want a friend that's honest, you know, check, ask with yourself, am I honest? Am I authentic? Am I upfront in, in conversations? Um, you know, so, so that what we're looking for in somebody is not different than what we're willing and able to give. Um, it's also, I think, very helpful and important to get feedback from existing friends and, and family, people that you trust, people who you trust, to give you feedback that's compassionate and that's helpful because many of us, because we haven't developed relational literacy, many of us have behaviors that actually push people out of our lives. We, we, we do things that make it difficult for people to feel connected to us, even as we may seek connection. So again, mm. it comes back. I'm not saying that relational literacy is the solution to everything. Obviously nothing is. Um, but relational literacy can help with a lot of things. And the more relationally literate you are, the more you become the kind of person who is able to foster authentic and meaningful connections. And, and most people are starved for authentic, meaningful connection today, um, really starved for it. And so we all have a lot of blind spots because we, we haven't been given this training and we often don't get feedback from the people in our lives about how we could change the way that we relate so that it makes people want to be in our presence more. We're often, um, I wrote about this in my book, we're often very reluctant to give people feedback on uh, on how they interact and how they communicate, for example, how they eat, um, when there are certain types of behaviors that can be very disconnecting and, and drive people away um, when the person has no idea what they're doing. And so you can ask people in your life for feedback and ask them for positive feedback first. You know, what is it about me that you feel like is um, helps people to feel connected and good in my presence? What is it about me that makes people want to be around me and spend time with me? Um, and you know, what are some things that you think I could change that would increase the chances that people would want to be around me? And don't blame yourself either because you could do everything right and, and still struggle to find people that you really feel connected with you know, and that you can have great friendships with. Um, and then you can ask yourself, what is it that you're, again, what is it that you're looking for in a friendship? Is this realistic to find in a friendship? And then go out and actively try to cultivate it. I mean, a lot of times we don't actively pursue relationships because we feel like they should just come to us. Even though we spend so much time, you know, grooming ourselves and getting educated and doing what we need to, to get a job and then showing up and going through the job interview, you know, performing, we don't expect jobs to fall in our laps, but sometimes we expect um, a lot of spontaneity and a lot of, uh, 
um, what's the word I'm looking for, coincidence to, to bring the right people into our lives. We really need to become the right people and seek the right people. Mm-hmm. And give yourself permission to be picky about the people you let into your life and into your inner circle. And mm-hmm. by picky, I mean, really ask yourself, you know, given the short time that you have on this planet, you know, is this another individual who you feel good, you know, sharing that time with? Do you, one indicator is not how you feel, you know, to determine whether a person is like, a, you know, perhaps a good person to have in your life, good for you, is to ask yourself, not how do I, how do I feel in this person's presence, but how do I feel about myself in this person's mm-hmm. presence? Mm-hmm. Do I feel good about who I am? Is it yeah. easier for me to be my better self when I'm with this person? Or do I have to struggle to like who I am and to feel good about who I am when I'm with this person? I think that's that's also a, a great thing about getting a little bit older. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm realizing yeah. that, you know, and, and again, we can also on a spiritual level talk about, you know, when you when you're very clear also to your purpose and and you're vibrating on a frequency that that you really enjoy vibrating from. I also believe that we tend to attract the people that come from that same frequency. I think that's 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 very obvious. I love what you say about feedback too. I mean, one of the the greatest gifts I have um, uh, I received was you know I was a part of a men's group since 2004, and you know we were very uh, early. St- early days here, and this was in Copenhagen, the, the men's group actually still exists to this day today. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, the greatest breakthroughs I had from that point in time was, you know, there were seven guys sitting around you and it was a little bit forced, but once a week you had to show up. I tell you, 50% of the time you did not want to show up, not because you didn't like the men, but because you knew that you were going to get feedback. And it was kind of, you know, a setting. But I also have to say that when I dared to both, you know, ask for feedback and then also when I, I could I could learn and practice to receive feedback, when there are seven people around you that say exactly the same and you're mm-hmm. like, really? Is that how mm-hmm. they feel? You know, both in a very positive light but also in a in a in more, you know, a, a, an area where you can grow more, especially where it was an area where I could grow more. When I went out and changed things there, that's where I had the greatest uh, breakthroughs in my in my life, mm-hmm. and that also led me to to doing what I'm doing today, which is you know constantly coaching and training and um, developing people. We could go on and talk for hours on this those topics here. And so, what I love about um, doing webcasts is you know you share something and it gives me ideas and you know opposite and we. We have this ping pong forth and back, and uh, I just wanted to really uh, thank you for for taking your time today to be with us and to be with the audience. And what we're gonna do, we're gonna send a link to your website uh, in our resilience community and also on LinkedIn and Facebook, where people can can go in and, and, and learn more about your work. We will also send a specific link where people can buy your book, Getting Relationships Right which I can highly recommend. Um, 
So with that, do we have a do we have an end comment? Something you 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 just burn to share? With, uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I love what you do. I think it's wonderful that we're able to have this conversation and reach people. I think the work you're doing it's it's so in alignment with what I'm doing, and I'm so grateful to see this these you know to feel this synergy and to feel this consciousness together. So I want to say a huge thank you, um, and and just you know really point out that what I'm talking, I don't want people to feel perfectionistic about relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, there's healthy relationships have wiggle room to make mistakes. And I'm talking about healthy relationships with yourself too. So a big part of healthy relating is compassion, compassion toward yourself and compassion toward others. So don't think you've got to get it perfect or even got to get it great. Just, you know, Wherever you are on that relational spectrum, try to nudge yourself toward relational health um, and you will benefit and have greater connections in, in your all, all areas of your life. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Melanie. And, um, and we will connect soon. Um, thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. With the Resilience Community, we are here to inspire you on how to increase your resilience and capacity in all aspects of your life, one change at a time. I'm Ole Hoyer. Thanks for today. Stay well out there and stay resilient. <laughs>